Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's guest is the legend, Dr. Stephen Gundry. He is the best-selling author of The Plant Paradox. He has a new book out, Gut Check. This conversation is all about your bugs existing throughout your gut and the impact that they have on your mind, on your emotions, on your sleep, on your energy levels, on your body composition, your fitness, all the things these gut bugs are at the root of so much. And this conversation is enlightening to say the least on how to optimize those little suckers. Uh, thank you for subscribing. Thanks for leaving us reviews. Thank you for checking out the Align Podcast YouTube channel, subscribing over there so you get the whole video version of this as well as instructional content. That is it, that is all. Thank you guys, hope you enjoy the conversation. Dr. Gudry, thank you for coming back. I really enjoy our time together. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you again. You're yeah. looking well. Likewise. Uh, I want to start off in a weird way, as you would anticipate. Uh, from your perspective, how do you define the mind? The first chapter or introduction of your book, I think it's, what is it called? It's like brainwashing, gut brainwashing. How do you, how do you call yeah. it? Yeah. Brainwashing with the gut. Bacterial, yeah. bacterial brainwashing is what's called exactly, it right Exactly, exactly. Yeah. How, how do you define the mind? What is the mind? Well, I would have told you it was a collection of neurons up in your cranium, but um, through the years I've become convinced along with others that what we perceive as our thought processes may, might be an intermingling of the thought processes of a hundred trillion different organisms that that live in us and on this and uh, mind isn't what it used to be it's uh it's much more complex than i was ever taught in medical school and hmm. i think as we're discovering the influence of these tiny one-celled organisms on almost all aspects of our behavior our emotions our our health uh, I think we have to redefine what the mind is. Hmm. And so what informs the disposition of those organisms to inform the experience of mind? Well, uh, we, uh, we evolved with a symbiotic relationship between uh, two or three kingdoms uh, that talk to each other, and it's called trans-kingdom communication, and so we're part of the animal kingdom. Uh, there's a plant kingdom, there's a fungal kingdom, and there's a bacterial kingdom. And what has shocked me through the years is learning that there is a language that these kingdoms communicate with and not only talk to each other with, but the power of these various kingdoms to interact with us and control us is, uh, is staggering. And a, a lot of what Gut Check is about is trying to inform people that there's a whole lot more going on than, than meets the eye. And that if we learn uh, the language and take advantage of that language and support this symbiotic organism that lives within us, uh, we're going to be a whole lot better off. Yeah. Yeah. So I just finished up going through the digital copy of Gut Check. It's, it's uh, not out quite yet. Uh, and in the first, I think it was in the introductory chapter, the bacterial brainwashing, talk about something that I've been enamored by for a long time, which is toxoplasmosis. Yep. And I think that's a, an interesting um well, metaphor and reality for uh, that relationship of the the those bugs that exist within us or are us or however you define yeah. that. What the hell is toxoplasmosis and how is that a relevant concept in this conversation? Well, so toxoplasmosis is a single cell organism. It's parasite. And so many parasites often have two phases of their life cycle. And like toxoplasmosis. And they have to have an intermediate host to live in to get to where their final host is that they can reproduce in. And it 
kind of an odd system, but uh, another way of putting it is just like a caterpillar has to, you know, go into a cocoon to become its final form, which is a butterfly or a moth. The chrysalis. Very good. Very good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, there's a, as you know, the monarch butterfly is making a comeback. Oh, uh, hell yeah. So anyway. I've been a big uh, monarch butterfly uh, advocate for a long time. Yeah, little they, little in fact. They're actually making a comeback in California. So this is actually exciting because they were kind of disappearing. But I digress. All right. So toxoplasmosis wants to get into a cat. And a cat can be a house cat, it can be a tiger, it can be a mountain lion, uh, whatever. And it's chosen as its primary uh, secondary place to be to complete its life cycle is a rodent, a mouse, a rat. Now, at first glance, that in a way would be a stupid idea to choose uh, because rodents are deathly afraid of cats. They are deathly afraid of cat urine and the sight of a cat will make them run the other way. So bad choice if you wanted to get into a cat. So what happens is that toxoplasmosis is acquired by in this case, the rat, by drinking uh, infected water that a cat has pooped in. And the coxoplasmosis organism gets into, in this case, the rat, and it literally works on dopaminergic receptors in the brain and does two things. Number one, it simplistically rewires the brain's fear cycles. And it actually makes the rodent think cat urine is an aphrodisiac, that it's the best smelling stuff they ever smelled. And number two, it reprograms the brain to get excited when it sees the sight of a cat or smells cat urine. And so it literally, this one cell organism takes over an advanced creature like a rat and makes it seek out cats and run to danger. And then the cat, of course, eats it and wins. Now, what's really fascinating is, yes, the original plan of toxoplasmosis was to use a rodent as its way of getting into a cat. But there are lots of other ways to get into a cat. And recently, and I want to give a shout out to Robert Sapolsky, who's a professor at Stanford, who I've been studying for years, literally years, and I've given him shout outs in some of my books. Uh, He does a beautiful lecture on toxoplasmosis. If anybody wants to pull up the YouTube. I think he's who I learned it from originally. It's a great lecture. Anyhow, so other species are predated, predated by large cats. Uh, Anyone who lives in Asia or India knows that uh, one of the biggest risks uh, of being eaten alive is man-eating tigers, and tigers like to eat humans. In Africa, big cats like to eat chimpanzees. And lo and behold, it's uh, been found that uh, chimpanzees can get infected with toxoplasmosis, and toxoplasmosis will change the chimp behavior to not be so afraid of big cats. What's most dramatic, I think, is the study of Yellowstone Park wolves. Um, Yellowstone Park wolves can be infected with toxoplasmosis. And pack leaders of the wolves in Yellowstone Park are almost always infected with toxoplasmosis. Hmm. Why would that be? They're bold. They take more chances. And why would you be bold and take more chances? Because the while a wolf is an upper level, uh, an apex predator, the apex predator of a wolf is a mountain lion, a cat. And it gets even better. It turns out that humans can be rewired by toxoplasmosis to make us less fearful and to run towards danger. And isn't it interesting that the vast majority of people who are killed in motorcycle accidents are infected with toxoplasmosis? Yeah. Yeah. 
so how so this single cell organism hijacks the brain yep to take you essentially zombifies you which there's examples of that of like the the i think it's the zombie wasp wasp yeah it has like kind of a similar type type experience similar but different yeah um and there's a, a lot of iterations of that, like overt iterations of that in nature, which makes me curious about the subtler iterations of that. And I wonder, wonder, is there anything, I feel like the answer might just be no, but is there anything that you're aware of in relation to uh, like pheromonal attraction to mates that may or may not be actually really ideal for you that just create pain, you know, and, and, and problems? Well, yeah, I think it's it's really getting interesting. Uh, a couple of books ago, I wrote about the fact that there's some very interesting research that uh, deep kissing or French kissing, it seems to be a universal pattern uh, among humans and certainly a lot of advanced species. Yeah. And there is an argument that I think can be very well made that your collection of bacteria uh, intermingle with the collection of bacteria in this person you're kissing, and the bacteria actually make the decision of who you're most, who they're most compatible with. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds woo-woo, but I think when you read Gut Check, you might be surprised it's not as woo-woo as you think. Yeah. The other thing that I've written about is we have a bacterial cloud around us, and there's some good arguments that can be made that this idea of personal inner space distance between us, where we begin to get uncomfortable, maybe our bacterial cloud running into the bacterial cloud of the person we're next mm. to and actually reading that information. So mm. it's not as odd as it seems. And there's also the electromagnetic conversation there as well like the heart math institute yeah, and, yeah you know, exactly the, the the electromagnetic um frequencies coming from different parts of our body are i think our heart extends out the furthest and yes yeah, so that's an interesting thing when we're in a room with each other we're we're kind of entering into each other's containers correct it's very fascinating and, uh oh go on oh and there's one more kind of interesting piece there's uh, many women know about a hormone that's released uh, right after birth, when the baby starts suckling on the breast, called oxytocin, and it's yep. uh, called the love hormone, and you bind with oxytocin. Recently, uh, a bacteria in the gut has been discovered that manufactures ox oxytocin, hmm. and that bacteria is actually, we think, used to be very common, but now it's like most of the bacteria in our gut has been wiped out. And uh, isn't it interesting that a bacteria might be responsible for what you, love? What do you think? What do you think the path towards defragging or clarifying a person's desires are? Do you think that I know we're going beyond uh, gut check book programming, but do you think perhaps like like the age old you know meditation? is a path towards defragging that and kind of getting developing mind um, beyond the bugs desires? Well, yeah. And meditation actually has been shown and I've written about this in previous books. Meditation actually changes the gut microbiome dramatically sure. for yeah. a much more diverse gut microbiome. So um, mm. it, uh, I think, the more we kind of know about the gut microbiome. And remember, we didn't even know these guys existed until the Human uh, Microbiome Project finished mm. in 2016. Mm. Uh, we didn't know they were there, really. And we didn't know that there's you know 10,000 different species. And we're just now figuring out what each of these guys do. And yeah. the interdependence of these guys on each other, and I talk a lot about that in Gut Check, and how these guys control so much of what we've assumed our brain uh, is in control of, like anxiety and depression. Yeah. So something else that's interesting is the percentage of neurotransmitters that are produced in the gut. So something I think like yep. 95% of serotonin, serotonin is produced, serotonin, produced in the yeah. gut. And when we say gut, could you define gut as... 
is that intestines? Is that in, is sure. that well, your gut other te- organs? Technically, begins in your mouth and nose, sure. and then goes all the way through your stomach, small intestines, yeah. uh, large intestines, and out to your rear end. That surface area is actually the same surface area as a tennis court inside mm-hmm. of us, and so so that's the gut. But mm-hmm. living within the, the gut are a hundred trillion uh, organisms. Mm-hmm. And that's a large amount of organisms. For instance, like I write in the book, uh, there's been a recent count that there are three trillion trees in the world. So there are 97 trillion more bacteria living in our gut than there are trees in the world hmm. just to give you the enormity of that hmm. it's like, holy cow it's, it's turtles all the way down you know that one yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how does this come into how does understanding this affect our relationship to mood so if 95 percent right. of serotonin is produced in the gut uh, and depression and anxiety and addiction to pharmaceutical drugs to ameliorate these psycho-emotional conditions is kind of the, the, like the common trend for, for a person to be reaching out to. Uh, how does coming into right relation with our gut uh, inform a better relationship with our, our mind and our emotions? And what are the actual actual steps to um, have a, a healthier relationship with that space? Well, one of the interesting things that's come to light fairly recently, um, glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, was actually patented as an antibiotic and not as a weed killer. And glyphosate, uh, we've known that glyphosate interrupts the, what's called the shikimate pathway, and there won't be a test, uh, that plants use to grow and reproduce. and that's how it's a weed killer. But bacteria also use the shikimate pathway. And so glyphosate actually targets the tryptophan serotonin pathway bacteria the best, kills them. Hmm. And so you're right. Um, just to back up a second, long ago we talked about a, a gut-brain access. And in the first case, it was there were a hundred million neurons that are in the gut, line the gut. And it was called the second brain. There's actually more neurons in your gut than there are in your spinal cord. So that's a lot of neurons. And we thought that these hormones, like serotonin, were coming from those neurons and that the neurons were making it. Well, it turns out that wasn't the case because we didn't know about the bacteria that were there that can manufacture. It can take tryptophan, make 5-HTP, make serotonin, um, make dopamine, make estrogen. And so now we realize that it's actually the microbiome gut-brain access that is the missing piece. And now that we've started to learn what these bacteria are capable of producing. You're right. Most of the serotonin that we need in our brain comes from the bacteria in our gut. In fact, as I talk about in the book, a lot of people who are on antidepressants take uh, SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And what's been puzzling about that is it takes about a month for SSRIs to kind of kick in, to improve your mood, to relieve depression. And now we've discovered that what's actually happening, if these are serotonin reuptake inhibitors, tomorrow I ought to feel better because I'm blocking serotonin uptake. But it takes a month. Well, now we know that the way it works is it changes the gut microbiome into a more favorable microbiome that begins producing serotonin. And that's why it took a month to happen, because you actually have to fertilize and grow these guys and change the microbiome. Hmm. So with every passing day, we're realizing that, oh, that drug isn't working in the brain. 
It's working by changing the gut microbiome. And that's where the effect is coming from. Hmm. So freaking interesting. Yeah. And, and so uh, it seems like a, a starting point, I would imagine, would be removing some of the culprits that are disrupting our microflora slash yeah. all the other parts. So those things might be, you know, uh, what are examples of, of, say, like endocrine disrupting chemicals, you know, and microplastics and glyphosate, as you already mentioned, and other phthalates. Yeah, like all the things that are that are that are lurking. I feel like it. The first step would probably be remove, and then after that, the next step would probably be like reseed, to use like a gut term. True. Uh, yeah. What would be the top culprits for a person to be aware of that perhaps might be on their skin right now, or they may be breathing in their house? Flame retardants, you know, like the the forever chemicals, like all the different things that we might be utilizing that just we just see as, see as being very benign. What would be like the baseline? kind of, okay, let's just, let's just get rid of this just as a, as a, as a standard. Uh, well, recently both consumer reports and the environmental working group have, have looked at, uh, glyphosate in fast foods and common foods that we eat. And these forever chemicals, these plastics, these microplastics, these phthalates, these BPAs, and the, they're endocrine disruptors. They actually really disrupt our endocrine system, and there's a lot about it in gut check. But these things are now ubiquitous. They're in yeah. almost all of our fast foods. Shockingly, they're in almost all the foods that we eat. We used to worry that, I mean, there was a great paper that women who ate a lot of uh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts when they were pregnant uh, gave birth to boys who had smaller penises. Uh, true. Mm, I think and, that's what happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> Poor I was guy. a big chicken fan. And she should was, have been eating ruminants. It, it was the it was the phthalates that were doing it. Right. Well, now so phthalates are in plastic wrapping. Uh, good news, <coughs> there aren't any phthalates in Ziploc bags. Interestingly enough. Uh, so if you're going to use a plastic bag and I have no relationship to Ziploc, maybe they'll be on the phone and say, Hey, we love you, man. Yeah. Uh, but so they don't have any phthalates. Glyphosate is everywhere. It's sprayed on all of our grains. It's no longer just for GMO products. It's sprayed on wheat. It's sprayed on corn. It's sprayed on soybeans. It's sprayed on you, you name it. It's sprayed on it. oats, uh, to, Kill the plant so it's easier to harvest. Yeah. So, uh, and it's in a lot of our organic foods. And that was actually one of the reports that came out today. These things are in our organic foods. So it's hard to be safe uh, anymore. But you're better off anytime you can get organic um, as yeah. a start. Well, what can we do as a prophylactic from like a dietary perspective or from any other perspective is just as like a protective measure since uh, most of these endocrine disrupting chemicals are so ubiquitous if you do live in a modern culture. Here's the good news. Uh, when you look at super old people, late 90s, early 100s around the world who are thriving and look at their microbiome and their microbiome is full of xenobiotic eating bacteria. Xenobiotics are these compounds that we just talked about. We, unfortunately, have lost all of those bacteria that want to eat this stuff. Um, believe it or not, there are bacteria that can eat oil spills. Um, bacteria just want to eat carbon atoms, and oil is full of carbon. Uh, it's a petrochemical, and all of these plasticizers are petrochemicals. They're carbon atoms. So we used to have a great system for eating these compounds. And what's really interesting is these super old people still have those bugs. Now, can you get them back? I believe you can. And part of gut check is, look, these, these guys have, number one, we've wiped them out in a really good way. We've We've napalmed our tropical rainforest of these bacteria, and we're basically, you know, a, a, a dry desert compared to, for instance, these super great old people. But there's really cool evidence that we have these little pockets 
of really keystone bacterial species that live at the base of what are called crypts in our intestines. And they're there with a bunch of stem cells as well. And I argue that you can coax these guys out of hiding by basically dangling what they want to eat in front of them. And one of the things that's solely missing in our diet that our great-grandparents used to eat on a daily basis is, and it sounds trite, they ate whole foods, but they ate foods whole. Um, they didn't grind things up into a fine white powder um, like we do with most of our food. There were no processed, ultra-processed foods. They were, those foods were full of prebiotic fiber, number one. And prebiotic fiber is what these guys like to eat. Right now, we don't give them anything that they like to eat. Number two, which is, I think, also really important, our ancestors made food that would preserve by fermentation, uh, whether it was fermentation of grains, whether it was fermentation of beans, whether it was fermentation of beer, wine, cheeses, uh, yogurts. That was the only way to store things and to also, quite frankly, make foods uh, edible and digestible. It turns out that that fermentation is really important to produce products that are called postbiotics that we now realize are probiotics, our friendly bacteria, have to have in addition to prebiotic fiber to make the compounds that we need to get these messages from hmm. these bacteria. Hmm. And that was, a, and there's a great study. Um, I didn't do it. The husband and wife team at Stanford, the Sonnenbergs, did it. And I think it's, it's a real eye-opener for any of us. A lot of us have been told, oh, you got to eat your fiber. you got to have prebiotics and, you know, all this roughage. And that's what they want to eat, and you'll be fine. So the Sonnenbergs took a bunch of humans, and they gave them a ton of prebiotic fiber. It was inulin, for those who were interested great prebiotic fiber. And they looked at their inflammation markers and they looked at their gut microbiome diversity. And the more diverse your microbiome is, the more species, the more teeming tropical rainforest it is, uh, the better in, in every aspect. They gave them all this fiber, didn't change their biodiversity and didn't change their inflammatory markers. And they go, well, that's interesting. We're giving them what they want. So the second group, they gave them the same prebiotic fiber, but this time they gave them fermented foods. In the case of the study, it was mostly yogurts and kefirs. And, but it could be sauerkraut. It could be, believe it or not, vinegar is a fermented food. Uh, believe it or not, coffee, tea, and Chocolate cacao is a fermented food. Good news. Um, and they gave them that with the prebiotic fiber. And lo and behold, their gut diversity bloomed and their inflammatory markers plummeted. Hmm. So it was, you got to have, it takes a village. And I talk about the steps you got to go through in the book to get these guys to come out of hiding, give them the precursors they need to build better compounds that start communicating with your brain and foster these friendly bacteria coming out of hiding. Hmm. And I still see patients six days a week and that's what we do. And the, the, the changes are remarkable. And this book is, you know, here's what I've learned since I published The Plant Paradox almost seven years ago now. And 80% of my patient population now are people with autoimmune disease and a wiped out gut microbiome and leaky gut. And we can rebuild this step by step. And the book tells you how to do it. 
want to take a moment and share about a sponsor that I am incredibly excited about. Today's sponsor is BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online platform that helps you find a perfect match of a qualified therapist. Therapy is something that I am immensely valuable that I got involved with about a year, year and a half ago or so. It has been a massive life changer for me and I would recommend finding a great therapist for any person that has any interest in deepening their relationship with themselves or the relationship with their partner or their family or just finding greater ease in their daily life. Uh, the holidays for many people is incredibly challenging. Historically for me, holidays have been pretty challenging times. And I think having a resource such as BetterHelp with a whole catalog of registered qualified therapists to choose from. And this is fantastic because finding the right therapist is a lot like dating. Oftentimes you don't want to just go with the first person that you meet uh, and BetterHelp provides you this amazing catalog with different folks. So first they assign a therapist that feels like a good match for you. And then there's no extra charge for you to swap between therapists until you find a perfect fit for yourself. Once again, therapy has been one of the most important things that I've ever done in my life. And I would highly recommend any person that has interest in exploring a deeper relationship with themselves, getting through grief, getting through sadness, getting through loneliness, getting through any type of sensations that might feel a bit uncomfortable. Uh, there is light on the other side and therapy can be a great way to find that. If you have interest in getting 10% off your first month and finding a great fit of therapist for you, you can go to betterhelp.com slash alignpod. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash alignpod. Yeah, when people ask, well, I don't know, on occasion, I think, whether people are asked or not, I, my, I kind of describe my diet as like a blend of Saladino and you, uh, because I think, uh, you know, I, I think animals are, are sensible in a lot of, for a lot of reasons, uh, but to villainize and demonize like all plant foods as just being like, you know, weaponized against humans because they're not able to move out of their, their place doesn't make a lot of logical sense to me. Uh, and I, what I like about the plant paradox and your lens on things is I, just, I, I think there, it, it brings nuance to the conversation that it's not just all foods are bad. It's more about the preparation of the food. And so things like pressure cooking or things like fermentation or things alike. You know, so what's is, is that? Can you talk a little bit about that of, of like that, like the conversation or debate of plants they can't move so they end up developing these defense chemicals as opposed to having fangs or teeth you know or claws or whatever um and and so we have the the lectins and we have the oxalates and we have all these inflammatory issues with with pretty much all plants that aren't aren't fruit now suddenly fruit is legal before fruit wasn't legal now it's legal um yeah so what do we what's yeah. what's a more nuanced conversation within that as far as could there be a conversation around it's not just the food itself it's the preparation thereof does that seem like something worth correct you know uh, paul a few years ago unfortunately called me the the father of the of the carnivore diet and i go oh no, please don't don't do that because yeah. um you know taken to its logical extension all plants don't want to be eaten but that's not true. Uh, plants actually want you to eat their fruit um, when it's ripe and its seeds are protected and blah, blah, blah. But plants do have defense systems. And interestingly enough, if speaking of xenobiotics, we used to have bacteria that love to eat oxalates. There are oxalate-eating bacteria. Most mm. of us don't have them anymore. Mm. Um, you can look at people who form oxalate kidney stones. They lack oxalate-eating oxalate bacteria in their gut microbiome. Mm. There are gluten-eating bacteria, a lectin. Most of us don't have those guys anymore. Uh, so we used to have, and I made this argument in the plant paradox, we used to have a robust defense system against things we wanted to eat. And if we didn't, our ancestors had already figured out a way to mitigate against these toxins with bacterial help. Because once again, bacteria can eat these things. And what they did is they used bacteria and yeast to 
eat these mischievous compounds before they ever got into us to, if you, if you want, detoxify them. I mean, the, the Incas didn't eat quinoa just by boiling it. They fermented it. They let it rot. And then they cooked it. And what is it about ate. fermentation? Is that is that it creates this kind of like symbiotic bacteria to relate with your system, or is, or is like what what is why is well, fermentation two valuable? Two things. Number one, bacteria and yeast like to eat carbon atoms, and these, for instance, lectins are proteins that are carbon uh, carbon based proteins, and so they say, oh. There's some delicious carbon atoms. Uh, I like carbon atoms. I'm going to eat them. I'm going to eat them by fermentation. But what we didn't know is in the process of fermenting anything, there are compounds that are called postbiotics that are actually an incredible communication system to other bacteria, to us. And what we didn't know is that you actually, fermentation produces precursors that we then swallow that are needed by certain other bacteria to make the final end product that we're looking for for our health. Hmm. Uh, so it's, it, it gets, the, the more we learn about these individual bugs and the more we learn that it's basically assembly line that, you know, bug A is going to eat something, it's going to produce a compound that bug B needs to eat to produce a compound that bug C needs to eat to make bug D make the compound that we need. Yeah. And if you got one that's missing, you're screwed. And fermentation was, hey, let's do part of this process outside the body and in a way make up for maybe a loss of a middleman. And that's where fermentation is just, it's a part of, of the human experience. Uh, that was the only food, you know, preparation storage system long yeah. ago. That yeah. was it. Yeah. Uh, so something that's somewhat kind of like a trite rapid fire type question. Uh, what are your thoughts on carbonated water for gut health? So uh, I think that everybody should be drinking San Pellegrino uh, sparkling water all day, every day. Hmm. There's um, really, really, yeah. there's, there's an argument that can be made that the carbon dioxide, as you and I were actually just experiencing an effect of carbon dioxide uh, in our breathing exercises, carbon dioxide is actually a postbiotic gasomessenger. And if you really want to calm your mind, uh, carbon dioxide is a really good way to do it. And if you want to take the jitters away, then uh, have some carbon dioxide in your beverage. Son of a bitch. I've heard, I've heard things that, uh, that carbonated drinks are like, I don't know, disruptive to the gut. But also I, I'm a big fan of you know, Buteco method and Patrick McEwen and all things that are breath holds and exhalations and, yeah. and increasing CO2 yep. in the, in the, the bloodstream in the body yep. um, for just like, there's a, a, a long list of reasons why that's beneficial. Um, that's interesting. How much more or less effective is the consumption of carbon dioxide in the form of sparkling water compared to just doing a breath hold? Uh, I'm not quite sure anybody has done that experiment yet. But, That's so interesting. Uh, I, you know, I'm, this is it's it's talked about in biohacking circles um, that hey, you know, if you're going to drink water, drink some with carbonation in it. And so is it almost like a CO two? Could it almost be equated to like being in ketosis from not eating carbs compared to taking exogenous ketones in a way? The carbon dioxide. Uh, being produced as a product of, of just, you know, not breathing in comparison to actually taking exogenous carbon dioxide. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Huh. So you're a fan of carbonated water. I am. Uh, particularly San Pellegrino. The reason, and I'm, they don't sponsor me. Uh, they, uh, it has the highest sulfur content of, of any water. 
Mm, it's good for and, the myelin sheath. Yeah, sulfur is good stuff. Yeah. All right. Um, something else I'm interested in uh, in relation to your to the book Gut Check that I, I, I gathered out of there. I'd I'd like to understand for myself and for others uh, the relationship of one. What is mTOR? It's a popular conversation in the world of longevity and things alike, uh, and its association to IGF one, mm-hmm. insulin like growth factor mm-hmm. one. Yep. Um, why is that a relevant conversation? Is that something that's of value for people to understand that relationship uh, within themselves? Yeah. So actually, I was a, um, a transplant heart transplant surgeon when uh, rapamycin was discovered and was being evaluated. <laughs> and uh, rapamycin. So mTOR is the, was originally called the mammalian target of rapamycin when it was discovered that it's in all organisms other than mammals, it's now called the mechanistic target of rapamycin uh, for the M. And a lot of people say, oh, let's just get rid of the M. We were wrong and just call it TOR, but mTOR is stuck. So it's the mechanistic target of rapamycin. And what we found, we always wanted to find out with these immunosuppressant drugs, well, what was kind of the lethal dose? What, What would it suppress your immune system so much that you basically die? of an infection. And with rapamycin, and these, these studies are done in rats, rapamycin, you basically couldn't figure out you know, where the end product was. The more you gave these guys, the longer they lived. And you go, well, what the heck is going on? And they discovered that there is essentially an energy sensor, an energy availability sensor that we now name mTOR. And it's basically saying, okay, what do I have to work with um, to stay alive? Uh, What do I have to work with to reproduce? What do I have to work with to build muscles? And mTOR can even sense amino acid composition. So for instance, if you're interested in building more muscle mass, you know that branch chain amino acids are really good at turning on mTOR and mTOR and, ster- and steroids trend. What, well, and then steroids, I yeah. think get some amino acids and a little trend. And there you go. You're off and that's my, that's my, my advice as a yep. certified health professional. There you go. Listen to Gundry. <laughs> yeah, please. Better, better path. <laughs> so, and so, we can't measure mTOR, but we can measure insulin-like growth factor one, IGF-1, which is a pretty good stand-in for how activated or deactivated mTOR is. Now, most of us want to have mTOR activated at least seasonally or when we're young, up to maybe age 40. But what's very interesting about super old people, and I have a practice that looks, among other things, at super old people, these folks who are thriving in their late 90s, early 100s, have low IGF-1s. And it's consistent across the barrel. People who have, and I have had only one person in my experience in my practice with a low IGF-1 ever develop a cancer ever one. Hmm. Interesting. On the other hand, a high IGF-1 as we get older is associated with a much higher increased risk of cancer because IGF-1 growth factor, there is nothing in me that I want to grow. No offense. Um, Unless your mom had a lot of chicken breast. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. You know, we can, we can work on that whenever. Yeah. Uh, so, a lower IGF-1 as you get older is basically trying to letting me know that I that insulin that mTOR isn't being activated. So in my practice, we work on three things to lower IGF-1. Number one, less sugar or things that turn into sugar, and that kind of sounds obvious, but we can watch it. Number two, and this is where perhaps. Uh, the carnivores and I would disagree. The animal, pro- the amino acids in animal protein are very different 
than the amino acids in plant proteins. And there have been some very nice studies done altering amino acid and looking at mTOR. And if you want to lower mTOR, an easy way to do it is to eat less animal protein. I didn't say stop eating it, I just said less. And we can watch this on our patients. Now, the third way, suppose you don't want to do that. The most effective way, the most powerful way is time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting. And that's what I do in my practice. That's what's in gut check. I've been writing about it for 25 years. Um, It is the most potent way of lowering IGF-1. Is there a way to optimize uh, performance uh, and getting jacked while also optimizing longevity, or do you have to choose one or the other? I think that's a that's a really good question. I I don't know that I have the answer yet, but I think the the Italian cyclist study that I talk about in Gut Check and I talked about previously gives hope and. This this study was with Italian cyclists. They were put on a training table for three months. Everybody had the, the exact same food. Everybody had the exact same training schedule. The only thing they altered was meal timing. So one group, and they had the same calories. One group ate a 12-hour eating cycle. They ate breakfast at 8 o'clock in the morning, lunch at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, had to finish dinner at eight o'clock at night. Mm. The second group had breakfast break fast at one o'clock in the afternoon, had lunch at four o'clock in the afternoon, and had to finish dinner at eight o'clock in the afternoon, in the evening, a seven hour eating window. When they finished, the performance was identical between the two groups. But the group that ate the seven hour eating window lost weight, which meant they actually had better muscle mass than the other group. They had lost fat mass. The most important part, from my way of thinking, is their performance was the same, they lost weight, and their insulin-like growth factor plummeted compared to the other group that had no change. Hmm. So what that tells me, I hate to use the example, where you can have your cake and eat it too. Just interesting. lower. So, that could be, so you could be eating cow dicks all day and get your gains just narrow and and also simultaneously be optimizing for longevity if you narrow your cow dick feeding window correct and this this was actually uh, was done by uh, a researcher at the nih uh, in in rats uh, looking for longevity and it all became there were two famous competing studies looking at rhesus monkeys and longevity, and they were calorie restriction studies. And there were two groups, University of Wisconsin and the NIH. And the University of Wisconsin group showed that calorie restriction increased lifespan in rhesus monkeys. The NIH group didn't find an increase in lifespan, although both groups had better health span. When they, when they looked at the different amounts of food that people were getting, um, the University of Wisconsin group actually had more sugar and less protein. The NIH group had more protein, less sugar. So an NIH researcher said, you know, when we control an animal study, we decide when to feed them. And I'm wondering, in a calorie-restricted animal, when you put out their food, they're going to gobble it up because they're starving to death. And I wonder if it's actually the time that they're eating throughout the day that was making the difference. And so he designed a very elegant study controlling the time of eating and the length of eating. And what he found was, sure enough, it was the time of eating, in other words, how short you could make it. Hmm. And it didn't matter whether it was protein or sugar that they were getting. It was just compressing the eating window was actually the factor that promoted longevity. So, Does that vary from females to, to males? There have been some studies that suggest that males are more susceptible to the benefits of this than females. And yeah. certainly, as I've talked in Gut Check, uh, 
Look, if you're a female who's trying to get pregnant, the last thing you want to do is time-restricted eating. Right. Uh, be, because your, for instance, your mTOR wants to know that you've got a good food source, a reliable food source that can carry your pregnancy through to term without worry. And yeah. if not, you're not going to pop out an egg. Generally speaking, most of these conversations are blanketed for 20-something white males. Is that is that right or wrong? You mean in the biohacking community? And, and just like the suggestion of like, like you're saying like, oh, like the ideal is time-restricted eating or the ideal is this amount of carbs, this amount of protein or and protein or, you know, whatever the thing is. Much of this research is being is based off of, of people that are down to be on a college campus and be paid 50 bucks to be involved in some study. Like you and I probably wouldn't be involved in some study. Right. Unless we're really passionate about the specific topic. Yeah, you know, I mean, interesting. Um, the original USDA recommendations for vitamins that yeah. you needed were based on 20 college students in New York City in the late 1920s. Yeah. And they looked at what they ate, and they looked at these various vitamin levels in their blood and go, oh, well, that's, a, that's a healthy college student. I guess that's how much you need. Uh, and it's never been changed. It's like, yeah. really? It, it's, it, seem, it seems like so much of the nutritional conversation, which I, I generally steer away from because I feel like it's just... I just, I just don't know what we know in that space. That's, it seems so yeah. hard to, to actually reduce the variables to really have a confident understanding of, okay, if you put some ketones in your body, like this is exactly what happens. Or if you're in, you know, whatever the thing is. Um, and so, you know, that's why I like talking about like squatting or, you know, back pain or things of the like. Um, but uh, yeah, is, is that something that, is that ever frustrating to you? Well, do you, do you ever feel, do you ever feel like, you know, uh, well, all I can tell you is I look at blood work on my patients uh, every three months, and I've been doing it six days a week for the last 25 years. So I yeah. can look at a variable and say, yeah. hey, uh, and I can look at a supplement. I'll go, hey, you know, why don't you go to the health food store and buy this supplement? And yeah. let's watch what happens. Or, hey, I want you to take away lectin-containing foods or minimize their effect. And right. let's watch what happens to your leaky gut. And we can yeah. watch it repair itself. So yeah. that's it's, what our report and gut check. Yeah. It's, it, it, seem, it seems like a lot of the stuff would coming back to like, what's the blend of modern technology and ancestral wisdom with, with diet? Because it seems like a lot of the stuff, like if we're looking at research and it's based off of a small sample set of people that aren't you, um, it, it seems to me intuitively you know, because obviously I'm not a dietitian, that looking backwards is probably where a lot of the, the, the relevant information is, the stuff that's been around for thousands of years. Yeah, that, I think thousands of years is a good idea. Yeah. Um, I mean, but it gets, it can be, epidemiology, nutrition research can get really crazy because a lot of it's based on questionnaires. There was a real furor a few years ago when this study uh, it was out of Chicago, but looked at egg consumption and stroke. And it was a 20-year study. It turns out, and it came out that eating eggs causes strokes. Well, when you actually looked at the study, the, they asked people in one questionnaire 20 years ago how many eggs they thought they ate per week. They never asked them again and followed them for 20 years. So what you could conclude from that study is if you ate five eggs 20 years ago, we predict you'll have a stroke 20 years from now. And it's like, what? Yeah. No, you can't do that. Yeah. The other, the other thing that's, that's challenging for my simple mind is, is when you pull on one lever, it's none of your physiology exists in a vacuum. And so you can isolate some specific thing. You say, oh, we add for, you know, I said ketones earlier, so ketones. We add exogenous ketones in and this XYZ happens. But then there's this, this whole sequel of other events that are, that are transpiring that we just aren't measuring for in that study. And, and we so, now know that a ketogenic diet actually changes the gut microbiome uh, mm -hmm. dramatically. And so then you go, 
well, wait a minute. Is it because the microbiome got changed in a ketogenic diet and that's having the effect? And how do we measure that effect? Yeah. Uh, do you need, do you need to, to go? Uh, very short. Yep. All right. I wanted, I would, I wanted to ask because I'm a, a, a massive fan of, uh, olive oil and you've been a part of, of granting me permission slip for eating what seems to be an excessive amount of olive oil to most people, but I, I like it and I, I seem, you know, decently healthy. Um, polyphenols, yeah. olive oil, uh, what do we need to know about that? And yeah, what, what is, uh, tell me about olive oil. So uh, olive oil is a delivery device to get polyphenols into you. Uh, a very important couple polyphenols in olive oil, hydroxytyrosol is one of the most uh, important ones. Tyrosol is another one. And it turns out uh, there's actually a new paper coming out of Canada uh, that I got a preview of that took uh, older adults, 75-year-old adults, and they randomized them to a very high polyphenol olive oil. Uh, you can imagine where that high polyphenol, very high polyphenol olive oil might have come from. Uh, ah, Gundry MD. Anyhow, right? Yeah, I was gonna say, um, you, you have it. You, don't you have an? You have yep, uh, that's the highest. Is that like your olive oil? Yeah, it's my olive oil. That's Gundry cool. MD. It's good stuff. I stand by your olive oil. Thank I'm like you. A, I'm a big fan. I have no All intention right. to bring that up in this conversation, but it's really good shit. I'm a big I fan. I appreciate it. So. Compared it to regular extra virgin olive oil and then olive oil that was uh, sanitized. It was kind of deflavored. And they watched these guys for six months and they actually looked at uh, how to put this simplistically. Um, the reactivity on the surface of blood vessels, how sticky the blood vessels were. And I, we can measure this in blood tests, but they mm -hmm. used it. They used uh, MRIs. And anyhow, they found that the high polyphenol guys blew away everybody else. They, their vascular tone was better. The surface of their blood vessel was less reactive. The extra virgin olive oil eh, didn't do much. And the other olive oil made things worse. So why does that happen? Well, it turns out that polyphenols are produced by plants to protect their mitochondria from sunlight damage. Hmm. And we now know that the polyphenols are eaten by our gut bacteria. And those gut bacteria use them as a prebiotic, but they then turn those polyphenols into absorbable con compounds hmm. that protect our mitochondria. And it's all in gut check. But yeah, uh, I mean, there's some beautiful studies about the protective effects of high-dose olive oil. Very last thing. It's an important question. Nicotine. What are your thoughts on nicotine, Dr. Gundry? So nicotinic acid, niacin, is, is a remarkable compound for improving NAD plus levels. Hmm. Uh, it's also a pretty doggone good compound for lowering a really nasty atherogenic compound called LP little a, but we don't have time. What's interesting in the book, and I, I do not smoke. I'm a heart surgeon. Smoking is really dumb. Uh, don't do it. But a lot of the blue zones are smokers. Yeah. And <laughs> most of the blue zones are, are heavy smokers. And I think there's a lot of really good evidence that nicotinic acid, nicotine, uh, does a lot of cool things in uncoupling mitochondria. The problem is the delivery device. And the other thing that we have to be aware of, any tobacco company executive would not want you to be aware of, nicotine is addictive. And it's really hard to get off of nicotine. In fact, most alcoholics will tell you giving up alcohol was a whole lot easier than giving up cigarettes. Mm. And that's why you go outside of the AA meetings and everybody's outside having a smoke. Because nicotine integrates into your life whereas alcohol doesn't. That's the problem. Yeah. Nicotine, so, you, can, you can pack it into anything. 
Yeah, so I mean, yeah. do I take various forms of niacin? Yes, I do. Uh, do we have colleagues that use nicotine drops or nicotine patches? Yes, we do. Um, I'm not ready for that slippery slope, but yeah, uh, yeah nicotine is, we should, we should have more interest in that compound than we do. Mm. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate getting to, to uh, just absorb information from you. You've been, you've been a really great resource for me over the years. I appreciate you getting to share time and, uh, and for creating Gut Check the book. Well, I really you. genuinely enjoyed the writing style of it and the digestible encyclopedic nature. I felt like I, I got to learn a lot and it was also very digestible simultaneously. And um, so I appreciate well, you, man. Well, appreciate one of these days, you know, visit me in the office in, in uh, Palm Springs or Santa Barbara. I'm in my center of our, our office today and we'll go do balance things again. We'll do acro yoga again. X amount of five, six, whatever years ago when we yeah, did an interview out there, I well. put you up my feet beforehand. It was a good time. This time we're just doing boring ass breath work. Uh, hey, hey, let's 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 change our seat. We gotta change it up. We need to take right. it up a notch. Um, so gut check is the book. It is out by the time this 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 comes out, it will be January ninth. January ninth. Yep. And um, yeah, so grab gut check. Uh, is there anything else that would be relevant to point people? No, you can find me at you know drgundry.com or gundrymd.com, my YouTube channel, the Dr. Gundry Podcast. Dope. Amazing, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate you making time and uh, look forward to next time. All right. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. For before, check us out over at the Align Podcast YouTube channel so you can get the full video version of this conversation and much more, including instructional content and things of the like. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for joining you. I will see you next week.